0: Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today David Hook continues our series of messages on the Gospel according to Mark. Today looking at Mark chapter 8 verse 31 through Mark chapter 9 and verse 13. And now, here's David. Thank you, uh, Steve and team, for your music and words this morning. That last song is quite appropriate as we think about opening our eyes in wonder and learning to live our lives for Jesus. Let's just ask him to uh, show us more of himself. Father, we, we thank you for the opportunity to be here and for this day we ask that you would open our eyes to see the things that we might not have seen and open our hearts to be, uh, be your followers to the, ones, the one who gives us life. May our lives be given to him. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I titled this morning's talk, The, the Path to Life, and you can see here, Vicky's looking at the map, deciding which route to take, and we, this, this sometimes happens in our cycling trips, but uh, um, maybe as we talk this morning, we'll get a little better idea of, of the idea of choosing which path to take. <laughs> Is it going to work, Eve? In order to succeed, sometimes we have to give up. Does that statement surprise you? It's meant to. It's a paradox. An idea that first seems contradictory, yet upon further rejection, uh, reflection has some merit. Paradoxes are meant to grab our attention. They make us stop and think about them. So, is there a degree of truth to the idea that success can be achieved by giving up? Think of a, oops, too far. Think of a chess game. Now, I don't play many games of chess and I win far fewer than I play. But my fantasy when I play a game of chess is to take all of my opponent's pieces without losing one of my own. Of course, that's never going to happen. So when I start playing, a, a more sort of reasonable strategy emerges. I'm going to take, if they take a piece of mine, I'm going to take a piece of theirs. That, that's, you know, that's just got to be, there can't be any, like, you know, if they get two of mine and I don't get any, oh, that hurts, you know, like so. I got to at least get one of theirs. Now, expert chess players, on the other hand, know that sometimes sacrificing a piece will bring them closer to winning. If they were playing me, they would know that I could not resist an opportunity to take their queen. And in the meantime, they may plan an attack on my king that I don't even see coming because my attention is fixed on the queen, on their queen. So they are willing to sacrifice their strongest peace in order to win the game. In this passage, Mark presents us with a number of profound paradoxes that explore this idea of giving up or sacrificing something in order to gain something much more valuable than what is lost. I'm going to read the passage, um, and as it is read, notice that Mark is beginning to focus the attention of his readers, that's us, to the coming climax of his gospel, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. This section begins and ends with Jesus openly speaking of his coming death, In the middle, there are important lessons on life. Also, as we read, listen for surprising or puzzling, attention-grabbing statements. So here we are in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. And take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words... In in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in the Father's glory with with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzlingly white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there, was, there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud, This is my Son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why, then, is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. So after some thought on this passage, I've come up with a Three paradoxical sentences that I think um, summarize some of these thoughts. They're not really exact quotes, but I think they, they help us in the summary. The first uh, uh, paradox that I read is, to reach the goal requires giving up. Again, such a statement seems nonsensical. That's exactly what Peter thought of Jesus' new teaching. In Peter's mind and in many others, the Messiah would be a victorious king that would liberate God's people from their oppressors and reestablish David's kingdom as a world, world power. Now Mark had just recorded uh, Peter's confident declaration that Jesus was the Messiah, as we read last week. What Jesus was now teaching was unthinkable, a total contradiction in terms. A suffering Messiah? No way. Peter has the audacity to take Jesus aside and rebuke him. I can almost hear Peter saying, you can't talk this way. We need to go show those leaders your power and strength and make them understand that you are the king. We can't talk about suffering and dying. But Jesus declares that the Son of Man must suffer. Suffering is losing. Loss, loss of health, loss of possessions, loss of status, loss of security. If the Messiah was to suffer, then he must be giving up something. Look at the losses that Jesus identifies. First, there's the status or political power. He's going to be rejected by all the people that made up the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. Those would be the respected lay leaders, the religious authorities, and the highly educated biblical scholars. They would all reject him. Ask Messiah, these are the very people who should have given their allegiance to the one who was to come. Instead, he plans and counts on almost their rejection. That that is going to be a loss. Even more unthinkable to Peter and to many others would be the loss of his life. Peter would have been devastated by such an announcement. He had tied his life to Jesus. And if Jesus was going to be killed, things didn't look good for Peter. From our perspective, we often criticize Peter for rebuking Jesus. But we kind of have the advantage of hindsight. Looking back, we know that Jesus' death was the plan all along. He willingly gave up these things in order to succeed. Paul lists a number of things that Jesus was willing to give up in his letter to the Philippians. Here they are in chapter 2 of Philippians. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Death was the goal. Mark is purposely focusing his reader's attention on that coming event. Jesus, the Messiah, came to die, to give his life for the world. Uh, Mark will bring this into even sharper focus in the coming chapters, like in chapter 10, verse 45, he overtly states, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Peter's stand and position was an impediment to that goal. He was acting in the role of an adversary or a Satan. That's literally what the word means. By his words and actions. Just as Satan himself had tried to divert Jesus from this path, Peter was now taking on that role, and Jesus had to openly rebuke him for his misguided thinking. So Jesus would give up much to achieve his goal. Where does this leave those who desire to follow him? It leaves them with a difficult but important choice follow Jesus and give themselves up or hang on to their independence and go their own way. Jesus doesn't speak about an intermediate option like, I'm going to follow Jesus a little bit but I would like to keep some of my own choices as options. Followers of Jesus are called to act in a holy, selfless manner. The shocking metaphor that Jesus uses to emphasize this point would have made the crowd gasp with surprise and probably a deal of, a good deal of revulsion. Followers of Jesus are pictured by Jesus here as condemned Roman convicts. A person condemned by Rome was made to carry the instrument of his own execution to the place of his execution. In effect, Rome was demonstrating their total control of this person's life. They were stripped of any rights they had absolutely no choice as to their direction or to their fate. Jesus' use of such a graphic picture must have been a shock to the listeners. It is less sh- shocking for us, in hindsight, to know, to know this is exactly what Jesus did on the way to his death. So we accept the metaphor in light of that, that positive effect. But his listeners on that day wouldn't have had that hindsight. And they would have been horrified by thinking about having to become like a Roman convict. It certainly would have made them rethink their willingness to follow Jesus. They would be giving up their lives if they choose to become his followers and would have no claim to to choose their own path. Luke adds one detail that Mark doesn't record. And that is the word daily. Take up your cross daily and follow me. This is not a one-time event, but a daily affair. Every day and sometimes throughout the day, the follower of Jesus is asked to make a choice. They can assert their own control and choose the way that leads from Jesus, or they can deny themselves and choose the way leading toward Jesus. Every day we come to that fork in the road. The appealing way looks wide and easy, but the Jesus way kind of looks rough and narrow. One way, however, leads to emptiness, and the other to life. The second paradoxical statement I'm going to focus on is this one, losing life is saving life this is my condensation of jesus's most frequently quoted saying at least I haven't been able to find any saying of Jesus that is quoted more often. If you can you can let me know but here's the list of uh, verses where Jesus is quoted uh, saying pretty much the same thing it varies in a few words here and there, but the thought is pretty much the same. Six times the gospel writers quote this very Paradox. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. Six times. It must be quite significant for us. It's meant as as a paradox. It's not an accident that Jesus most frequently quote. Frequent quote is in the form of a paradox. And by nature, paradoxes are not precise statements along the lines of an instruction manual. Rather, they are a communication device that makes us stop and think. They're a bit like a riddle or a puzzle. A puzzle that's repeated six times in the Gospels calls for our utmost attention and our best attempts at a solution. Of course, in Mark's context, it's an expansion of the appalling cross-carrying metaphor that we just spoke about, it is urging us to consider that there may be actually some good reasons for picking up a cross and some serious consequences for failing to do so. What at first hearing may seem like a revolting idea is actually quite brilliant. In making sense of paradoxes, it's often helpful to remember that words carry more than one meaning. Take the word life, for example. Life can mean the physical state of being alive as opposed to being dead or lifeless like a rock. It can also refer to the quality of existence such as he enjoyed life or life was tough. So Vicky and I have often enjoyed many days of cycling locally and in far off places. Sometimes the conditions are just ideal for cycling. A sunny day, that is not too hot or cold, kind of like today really, a slight tailwind, gentle slopes with more downs than ups, a paved road uh, with no traffic, and of course, a marvelous companion. (laughs) When we find ourselves in these conditions, one of us will inevitably say, it doesn't get any better than this. So this is a description of a, of a quality of life in the best of conditions. It is something we would like to hang on to, to save. Life in these terms, however, is kind of temporal. It's of the world It's really focused on ourselves and our needs, and it's not going to last. There is another life not of this world. It is spiritual life. The Bible speaks of new life, abundant life, or eternal life. Or as Paul describes it in Timothy, life that is really life. It's not focused on ourselves, but it's focused on Jesus. Jesus told his disciples that he was going to lose his life, but then he would experience resurrection, a new life. This is the same life he offers his followers. If they would lose their worldly life, they can gain a recreated new life, a life that comes from being in Jesus and sharing in his resurrection life. So for someone to save their life may mean attempting to hold on to their good-if-it-gets life. However, we know that nothing in this world lasts forever, or even very long for that matter. Eventually, any life we attempt to hold on to will come to an end. The rain will come, or the wind will blow hard in our face, or the road will come to an end. It is impossible to hold on to this kind of life. On the other hand, giving up those temporal things for the cause of Jesus and for his kingdom and choosing to live for his goals and his desires will result in a thriving and vital life full of meaning and purpose. It ultimately comes down to a choice between death and life. In essence, this is the kind of choice given to the caretakers of the garden in Eden. They were given the choice of eating of the fruit of one tree or the fruit of another. They were told that one choice would lead to death, the other would lead to life. But the, first fruit, fruit of the, but the fruit of the first tree was described in Genesis 3, 6 as good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. So it was nutritional, mouth-wateringly beautiful and promised enhancing our abilities. I can just picture it in my imagination. A beautiful green tree with the sweetest scent And with the most brilliant fruit, deep, red, shiny, succulent, low hanging, within easy reach. It's almost like the fruit is shouting, eat me, eat me. It wouldn't be hard to listen to someone suggesting that there must have been some mistake. This is the most desirable fruit. Surely it won't kill you. Eat this one first. Don't miss the chance. Maybe you could try that other one later. I wonder if the fruit on the tree of life was kind of plain or maybe even unattractive. Maybe it looked green and not even ripe. Maybe it had wrinkled and tough skin. Not only that, it wasn't very low. You had to climb and get it. It was going to be hard to reach. It would require considerable effort to pick. No, Let's go back to the other tree with the spectacular fruit. Of course, you can see I'm making a comparison between life based on self-interest and life given for the cause of Jesus. It really becomes a choice of death or life. The difference will be found in the eating. One will leave a bitter taste, but the other will be sweet. Examples of these life and death choices come in many forms in the Hebrew Scriptures. Moses and his choice to give up the, the pleasures of Egypt to live a life in the wilderness, or Daniel and his friends who who decided to live for God in the face of certain physical death. They chose God's life instead of de- instead of their own physical life. I'd like us to look at one other form other from the wisdom literature, another example of these life and death choices. In the book of Proverbs, in chapter 8, we have a description of wisdom personified as a woman. She is said to be standing at the place where two paths diverge. She is urging people to take her path, a path that leads to the most satisfying destination. Fruit that is better than gold and produce that is Better than silver. If you have time later, just take a a moment to read that, uh, that chapter. It's really interesting. But at the end of Proverbs 8, wisdom says, For the one who finds me finds life and finds favor from the Lord. But the one who does not find me brings harm to himself. All who hate me love death. Jim Elliott, the missionary to uh, South America who died in his uh, efforts to bring the message of Jesus to people, he gave his life for the cause of Christ, summed it up this way in his life. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 2 weeks ago Vicky and I watched the uh, the Greatest Showman. It's a movie, a musical based uh, uh, loosely based on the life of P.T. Barnum of uh, Barnum and Bailey Circus. You might remember that that uh, old circus theme. And and in the movie Barnum has his ups and downs um and, you know, as he tries to start his circus uh, business. But the show introduces a fictional character but it's kind of an interesting character nonetheless. His name, He's named Philip Carlyle in the movie. And Barnum convinces him to become his assistant. So he joins the circus. But Carlyle came from a wealthy family and was, he, he was in line to receive a large inheritance um, unless he gave up that and foolishly run off and join the circus. Of course, that's what he does. So he chose to gave up, give up his place in high society for circus life. Well, of course, eventually disaster strikes. The circus building burns to the ground and it looks like all is lost. But Carlyle says, You know, Barnum, when I first met you, I had an inheritance, fame, an invitation to every party in town. But now, thanks to you, all of that is gone. All that's left is friendship, love, and work that i adore. <laughs> and i thought that was a pretty good summary of of what our christians might experience might be. All of that is gone, but what is left is the love we have in jesus and the and the work that we adore. Jesus wants us to do the same thing. We need to give up our old life and come and work for him. Jesus follows the paradox with a couple of penetrating questions designed to sharpen our thinking. Is there anything you possess that is greater that is greater than the value of your life? Is there something you could not give up, even if hanging on to it would mean your loss of life? Apparently, you can catch a monkey with nothing more than a coconut and some sticky rice. You make a hole in the coconut that's just big enough for the monkey's open paw to go in, but when he grabs the rice and holds it, it's, his paw is too big now in a fist to get out of the hole. And apparently he won't let go. Even when you come up to, to get, the, grab the monkey, he's still holding on to that sticky rice and can't get his hand out of their coconut. So you trap a monkey. But isn't that a picture of something that we do sometimes when we try to hold on to something we really want and it's costing us dearly? And we're trapped by it. So better to let go of it and to experience freedom. When we come to those forks in the road and we choose to turn away from Jesus, he'll have no choice but to turn away from us as we walk away from him and his kingdom. So better to let go of those things and follow Jesus. My, the final paradoxical statement is: sometime, something in plain sight can go unseen. M- guys, you'll never get that one, I'm sure. You know, <laughs> it's right in front of you, dear. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there, you know, there are two things in Mark's account that make me think of this paradox. The first is the nature of Jesus. They've been with Jesus now for some time, but they really have missed what his true nature is they haven't caught they haven't caught hold of yet what that really is, not even when he fed five thousand or he was able to control the weather, they still didn't really understand who they were with, and they didn't see it the uh the their eyes like we sang are going to be opened. At least three of them are going to have their eyes opened in wonder and see the life that is really available for those who want to join with Jesus. So in in this account, the three of them, Peter, James, and John, are taken by Jesus up to the top of a mountain. This is an event stuffed with Hebrew Bible allusions and design patterns. Jesus going up the mountain, just so much like Moses taking some of his Companions up the mountains to see the glory of God displayed. When Jesus and the disciples reach the top, it's like heaven has come down to interact, intersect earth at that point, and they are into God's presence, into that glory. And Jesus um, is transfigured before them. The disciples perceive him in a different way, they see Jesus in a spectacular Glorified light. He is bright and radiant with the glory of God. I often think about John when he wrote Revelation, and he turned around and sees that that image of Jesus. Oh yeah, I've seen that before. <laughs> but if you read that chapter in Revelation, it does seem like the same picture. So if that's not enough, two famous Old Testament characters, Elijah and Moses, appear to and speak with Jesus. Moses, the representative of the law, and Elijah, the prophets, the Hebrew scriptures, often referred to as the law and the prophets, are obviously in in place in view here in some way. They have we have a stunning visual confirmation that Jesus is the ultimate focus of that Hebrew Bible. Luke's, Luke gives us an additional detail that um, they were talking about. Jesus' mission, her, His upcoming departure, his, his coming death, in other words. The scene becomes enveloped by the cloud of God's glory that we see in the Old Testament when the cloud fills the tabernacle or the cloud descends on the mountain. The, the image and the and, uh, obvious sign of God's presence with them. And then the voice from the cloud This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Listen to Him is a quote right out of Deuteronomy 18.15. So the disciples had Jesus in plain sight, but they hadn't identified His glory up to this point. John would later write that we beheld His glory, and Peter wrote that they were eyewitnesses of His grandeur when the voice spoke from the majestic glory. This paradox of not seeing things in plain sight is again highlighted by Jesus in response to the disciples' question regarding the coming of Elijah. The Bible scholars had correctly interpreted that Elijah was to come first, but these same scriptures revealed that the Son of Man would suffer. This seems to have gone largely unseen by the scholars and his own disciples, even though they had the Scriptures in plain sight to read. In conclusion, we see that the path of life is paved with sacrifice. Just as chess players are willing to sacrifice, sacrifice things of value in order to succeed, we are called on to give up those things that we perceive as valuable in order to experience the real life that Jesus offers his followers. A life that promises to be sweeter than anything we can imagine. A life following Jesus and getting to know him. I'd like to close by reading Paul's testimony that he shared also with the Philippian followers of Jesus. In Philippians 3, Paul writes this, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when, we, when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ. Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with Him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with Himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised Him from the dead. I want to suffer with Him, sharing in His death, so that one way or another